Well, praise the Lord. I uh, had an unnerving experience as I was sitting there looking at my worship guide. I noticed it had that Pastor Mark was preaching, and I thought, well, I, I went ahead and prepared a message, and I hope that doesn't uh, offend you. And I don't know if it shocked you when you looked in the worship guide, but uh, I'll have to do a better job of editing that from here on. In your Bibles, if you would, please turn to Second Peter. We're going to continue in this series that I've been felt led by the Lord to, to uh, walk you through over the past uh, several weeks or months. And today we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1. But before we do, I, I want to say uh, God has impressed upon my heart that since I've been making allusions to the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude, that um, rather than try to go later and preach through that epistle, since the epistle of Jude and, and 2 Peter run so parallel to one another, that I felt by, by the, led by the Lord to just... Ex, you know, exposit both of these together to extract from both of these wonderful letters that have common themes. And so um, I've never preached out of two books at one time, but we're going to give it a try. And I hope that you can get, kind of follow along. I'll try not to confuse you too much. So in order to maybe get you up to speed, uh, it would be important that we take just a minute and you'll find the book of Jude just a few pages over toward the back of your Bible uh, as you're heading towards Revelation. In fact, this is the book uh, just before Revelation. And uh, as, we, as we try to understand what this letter or epistle of Jude is about, um, it, it's important that we talk about the author. The author of the book of Jude, of course, like most of the epistles, uh, is, is Jude. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's his name. So who's Jude? Uh, Jude in the Hebrew would be Judah, and Judah was a very powerful, uh, uh, you know, tribe in, in the nation of Israel, very prominent tribe. Uh, Ju Judah was Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, Judah was the tribe out of which the Messiah would come. King David came out of Judah was the region of of Israel where the city of Jerusalem, the capital, situated. So you would say Judah in the Hebrew was a very popular name, and probably there were quite a few men named Judah. In, in however, the name Jude in the in the Greek, interestingly enough, is Judas. And, and I thought about the contrast between Judas, the disciple that betrayed Christ, and yet here's Judas the one that is right in the book of Jude. So in Hebrew, Judah. In Greek, Judas. And then in English, that's where we come up with Jude. I don't know if it came about the same time that the, um, the English rock group uh, back in the 60s and 70s came out with the song, Hey Jude. Uh, I doubt it. Uh, but uh, I know Betsy picked right up on that. But... Um, Anyway, and, and of course, you know, there are other names associated with Jude. Uh, think about the Catholic Children's Hospital up in Tennessee, uh, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. But Jude, interesting, you know, Judah, Judas, Jude in the English. So we'll be talking about Jude from here on out. Jude is actually one of the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And he'll, he'll come into his introduction. He won't say that. Jude is known uh, in, in most of this uh, uh, commentaries and early church uh, fathers spoke of Jude as being a very humble man. And so he wouldn't be the one that would come right out and say, hey, I'm, I'm a half-brother of the Lord Savior, Lord Savior Jesus Christ. However, he does mention the fact that he, Jude, in verse 1, uh, a, servant of, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Which James? And, and he's talking about James, the 
other half-brother of Jesus Christ. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he simply says, I'm, I'm a brother of, of James, the other half-brother of Jesus Christ. So anyway, that gives you some idea who the author is. Interestingly, as you look at the, the um, background of Jude and James, uh, the half-brothers of Jesus Christ, they were not believers of Christ. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah until his resurrection. After his resurrection, then they became believers. And obviously God prominently used both men to write the, the epistles of James and Jude, and then for James to be the leader of the church at Jerusalem. The book was re written, uh, most scholars say between 68 and 70 A.D., uh, 68 A.D. would place it right after the death of Peter and 70 A.D. before the fall of the city of Jerusalem. So most scholars say this epistle was written sometime between A.D. 68 and 70. The purpose of Jude, as we'll see, as well as the purpose of the book or the epistle of 2 Peter, is to expose and to confront the presence of false prophets, teachers, and uh, preachers that have infiltrated the early church. And so we'll see this theme being addressed by both writers, and I think it's, it's good for us to see the parallel that exists between these two epistles. The audience that Jude is obviously writing to is probably a Jewish Christian audience because in his letter, that brief uh, epistle, only one chapter, um, in, you'll find that Jude makes references to Old Testament uh, stories and illustrations. And then also he does draw in some references to the Jewish Apocrypha. So that makes, makes most scholars think that he's writing to a Jewish audience at that point. And um, so it's interesting, as, and you'll see this as we look at the text today in Second Peter and then in Jude, beginning in verse 1. You'll see there's, uh, that both, both of these men, both leaders, uh, of course the apostle Peter being the leader also of the church, and then Jude as, as the half-brother of Jesus and a, a leader also in Christendom at that time, both had a deep conviction to confront the problem of false prophets and teachers and preachers in their presence. And so uh, let me just walk you through first uh, three verses of Jude just to kind of get, get that off and going and then we'll go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Jude chapter 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now pay attention to verse 3 because it, be, it, it reveals something transpired in Jude that, that sets the stage for the rest of the letter. In verse 3 he says, Beloved, speaking of fellow Christians, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly. And that word contend, that verb is, is, is a very active verb, almost as, as if you would say to battle, to fight, uh, to, to contend uh, for uh, the, the faith. So he's, he's challenging these early Christians to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I would say the same thing to contemporary Christians today. Don't be lackadaisical about the faith tradition that we're blessed to have. Don't be lackadaisical about the reading and the studying of God's Word and, and how we apply the Word of God. Don't be lackadaisical and, and, and so casual about your, your opinion of, of, of Christian doctrine. We, we should every day 
Contend earnestly for it. Be ready to be an apologist, to stand and defend our faith. Be, it's important. That's why we as pastors of this church take such time to teach the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, because this is our God in light. This is our ultimate authority. If you don't know the Word of God, if you don't know what it is you believe and why you believe it, then you're very, very vulnerable to the forces that Jude and Peter are speaking of here. And so he's, he's saying in verse 3, I wanted to write a letter that would be kind of a warm, fuzzy letter, an affirming letter, a, a letter to just confirm all of us in our faith and we can celebrate all the blessings and benefits. But he says, time out, special bulletin. I've changed my mind. No, better still, the Holy Spirit has changed my mind. I'm going in a different direction. And he does. And from this point on, you'll see that his intent is to, to combat the presence of false teachers. Now we go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. And of course Peter has been, as I told you in the introduction of 2 Peter, this is on his agenda too. To confront the false teachers that are in the presence of that early church. So let's look at chapter 2, 2 Peter, verse 1. And Peter says, but there were, notice the tense of the verb, but there were also false prophets among the people. Even as there will be, isn't that interesting? It goes from past tense to future tense. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, brought, who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Let me just stop just a, a brief commentary. You'll notice that, that Jude writes in the present tense. The, 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 false, pre, the false teachers are present. Peter's letter epistle is written earlier. Peter's speaking of the future. He said, they're on the way. They're coming. Beware. Paul spoke of the same tense. You remember in Acts in chapter 20 when he's, he's greeting the, the elders at, at, from at the church at Ephesus and they come out and, and he warns them. He says, these savage wolves will rise up. They will rise up among you. False teachers, false preachers. And so Peter and, and Paul sensed that that imminent coming of these, these false teachers, whereas Jude speaks of their very presence already at that time in his letter, which he wrote a few years later. So, Peter, look at verse 2. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. We'll stop there for just a second. It's interesting because Peter is talking about the false prophets, first of all. He says there were false prophets. He's taken the, writer, the readers of this epistle back into their Old Testament background. And he said, listen, this whole concept of false teachers, false preachers, it's nothing new. It's like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.9. There's nothing new under the sun, including false representatives of the Word of God and the will of God, false prophets, teachers, and preachers. And so Peter is pointing back to the Old Testament. And so when we look at the characteristics of these false teachers, they resemble the false prophets of the Old Testament. For instance, if you go back and you look in Jeremiah, and if you don't want to turn, you can listen and I'll read it for you. In the, in the prophet's words in Jeremiah, in chapter 5, 
God is speaking through the prophet. He says and in, in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 30. An astonishing and horrible thing has, co has been committed in the land. He's speaking of the land of, of Israel. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. They've been led astray by these false prophets. So even in Jeremiah's day, we see God despises those who would dare to distort his word and then mislead his people. Now listen, that's not the first time that God's displeasure with false prophets is expressed because if you go over them back to Go back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. You'll see that God has instructed his people to deal harshly with anyone who would be a false prophet. Listen to the words out of Deuteronomy 13, verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has spoken in, in, in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall put away the evil from your midst. God didn't take lightly the presence of those who would dare to misrepresent his word and dare to mislead his people uh, and so they, they have a precedent out of the Old Testament there that Peter is talking about there in verse 1 when he says, but there were also false prophets among the people. You know, it's interesting, not only did the false prophets, the false teachers of Peter's day resemble the false prophets of the Old Testament, but do you know they resemble the false teachers of today? The false preachers of today. When you look at the characteristics, Peter warns that the, the times may change, but their tactics don't change. Over in Jude, Jude and, and verse 4 describes some of the tactics of these false teachers. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are some of the characteristics of these ungodly false leaders that, that Jude and Peter and even in the Old Testament are, are addressing, we see that they promote a type of Christianity that denies the lordship of Jesus Christ right from the get-go. They deny that Christ was the Son of God. They deny that Jesus was bodily resurrected. They deny and resist the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They, they usurp the authority of Christ and insert their own authority. And this is, dear folks, this is how cults get born. By somebody trying to usurp the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They are deceptive. They'll twist the word of God. They'll deny the word of God. They will try their best to undermine the authority of the word of God. And that was beginning to happen in the early church in Peter's time and in Jude's time. And it's happening today. They are greedy. Oftentimes you'll see this. Peter points out that they are very licentious. They are very greedy. They seek, seek to promote their own uh, selfish, greedy causes. 
They, they misused the people of God as, as Peter pointed out in verse 3. He says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. I think about some of these so-called preachers that you find on television today. They talk more about their money and their bank account and trying to sell you their t-shirts and their books and their cruises. And it's all about stuffing their wallets and padding their wallets and, and building up their bank accounts. I mean, really, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where the false teachers are out there today because they are always talking about money. But not only that, licentiousness, taking liberty, trying to promote some type of a, a, of a loose living among Christians that, that uh, actually is, is misusing the grace of God. They're all brothers and sisters. You don't have to worry about these minor sins like having an affair or cheating on your income taxes or lying in court. I mean, we're all covered by the grace of God. You know, amen? <laughs> so, you know, this was going on and Peter was warning the people and so was the writer uh, uh, of Jude, Jude. And they promote, and so oftentimes, and tragically so, when some of these false teachers emerge and they build their little uh, financial empire, if you will, and, and sooner or later, because of their own ungodliness and their own immoral living, they, they finally get found out. And you know what happens then when the secular media grabs a hold of this, quote, Christian leader that's fallen in grace and everybody's known he's been a charlatan all these years. Guess what? The, the, the secular media, media, the secular world automatically coins that as if it were all churches, all Christians. Not, I tell you, nothing does, does more damage to, the, the, to, to the, the, the true church than these charlatans that are out there peddling this kind of false theology and practicing this kind of ungodliness and so we need to be aware. I was thinking about our Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Phoenix, Arizona as Pastor Mark was having us to pray uh, for the messengers that will be assembling there today and be meeting in various meetings uh, and conferences through Wednesday. Uh, we need to pray for them because this is the deliberative body of the Southern Baptist Convention. They make key decisions that affect all of us as Southern Baptists. We need to pray for our leaders, the, the president of our Southern Baptist Convention and, and all the others. We need to pray for all of the leaders of our Southern Baptist entities, the seminaries, the six seminaries, and then our missions organizations as well as other ministry organizations in our Southern Baptist Convention as they meet. They represent not only Southern Baptists, but the world is watching and so oftentimes they represent Christendom. But you know, I was thinking as I was preparing this, talking about the presence of false teachers. 40 years ago, if you were around and, and you were examining, and I know some of you were, like myself, and you were examining the Southern Baptist Convention, it would be a totally different animal the things that Peter is warning the church about then and warns the church about today had indeed taken its toll on our beloved convention. Over the decades of the 50s and then the 60s, Satan had very cleverly and, and, and shrewdly inserted leaders in the pulpits of Southern Baptist churches who then led messengers to elect profess or seminary trustees who, and then from there uh, to elect uh, leaders of our missions organizations and, and have appointed as leaders of our Southern Baptist Convention uh, men 
who did not believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility and the authority of the Word of God. We were as liberal as many of the mainline denominations that are dying on the vine. And you know, we owe a great, a great debt of praise and also gratitude to God. Because it was an act of God that back in 1979, God raised up a preacher from Bellevue Baptist Church in Tennessee by the name of Adrian Rogers. A prince of preachers and a real diplomat. But a man who stood firm on the word of God and surrounded Dr. Rogers with men and women from this convention, grassroots Baptists, like my own parents and grandparents, people who all of a sudden realized, whoa, wait a minute, our convention is out there promoting some of these wild, radical, social, ethical causes. So you see, over time, like the frog in the kettle, that expression, over time, one of the, the country's largest uh, evangelical denominations was led away from the scriptures and the authority of, of God's word to become a liberal denomination. I'm proud and happy and thankful to God to say that we are now back on our feet with the word of God. We have absolutely strong, conservative, biblical men in leadership of our convention and all of our seminaries and all of our missions uh, organizations. And we're back where we need to be. Pray for your Southern Baptist Convention. Pray for the leaders. Pray for the preachers. So, so it did happen. And it can happen. When we drop our God. So let's look further in chapter 2 of Peter because we see the characteristics of the false teachers. But let's understand. Don't miss what he says at the end of verse 3 where he says, uh, For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Don't think, Peter says, for a minute that God has not noticed these rascals who are moving into these positions and trying to infiltrate and damage the church. Church, He says, listen, God's already determined their judgment and, and God is not sleeping and he's not slumbering. He's already determined their judgment. And Peter goes on to say, and let me give you some for instances. If you want a taste of the judgment of God that he has in store for those who would dare to infiltrate the body of Christ and to poison it with untruth, then he says, then you need to pay attention to what the scripture teaches about the judgment of God, the awful judgment of God, and his awesome power is on display. And so he gives three ominous precedents from the, from the past. Uh, and so look at verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the preacher of righteousness, um, bringing in the, the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, and making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now, now that's, those are some top, I'm going to say some of the top illustrations of the judgment of God. Before we look at those closely, go over to Jude and let's see what Jude has to say about the judgment of God that awaits those who would be false leaders in the church. In Jude chapter five, in Jude verse five, I got to get used to saying that. Jude says, "But I want to remind you, though you once knew this." 
that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, which most scholars say is a reference to homosexuality, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Wow. What is, what is this saying? Peter is saying, Jude is saying, don't think that holy and righteous God is looking lightly upon these imposters who dare to infiltrate the church and dare to try to undermine the authority of the word of God and the lordship of Christ who dare to practice ungodliness and promote it as if it's good. He says, consider, just consider some of these examples. These incarcerated, condemned, fallen angels and as you look into, and, I, and I, I spoke on this when we were in 1 Peter because Peter talked about Jesus descending into Hades and preaching to those souls. It was the angels, those who were in, in chains. And, and if you go back in Genesis chapter 6, it talks about angels who dared to cross the line of morality that even God had drawn for angels, if you will. They, they went beyond the, the, the worst of the worst and, and during that time, prior to the flood, scholars tell us these angels occupied bodies of human males and cohabitated with females. And it was such an ungodly, uh, uh, you know, occurrence that God, you know, of course, was ready to bring wrath upon the world. But also, he condemned that group of angels to be confined in, 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 the, in the pit, the dark, dark pit, uh, that, that they are there in chains, incarcerated. They were there in Genesis 6. They were there when Jesus rose from the, from the grave, when he went down to, to announce victory over them. They're there today. And, and the Bible tells us, even as we go into Revelation, they, they are confined there until the great white throne of judgment. And that, that is an awful, you're talking about being on a spiritual death row. That was, the, that was the penalty that God inflicted upon these angels who dared to go even beyond the unthinkable. So he says, don't forget the judgment of God upon these condemned fallen angels, the incarcerated condemned fallen angels. But also he uses the illustration of the obliterated world of Noah's day in Genesis 7. We all know the story how God brought a great flood upon the world because of this wickedness that we just spoke of that was induced by the angels and, and, and then, of course, sinful man. And God didn't spare any Everybody, every living land and air creature perished in the flood, save for eight people, Noah and his family, and the animals that God had that instructed Noah to take on the ark. And Peter is saying, and, and, and Jude is saying, this is the anger of God. This is the wrath of God. This is the punishment of God that awaits anyone who dare to do this to the body of Christ. And of course, we know that in, as Jude was talking about that unfaithful generation that came out of Egypt. And God, of course, judged them because of their unbelief. 
all of them, the whole generation, save for Joshua and Caleb, perished in the wilderness. But then, who can forget that awful incident described in Genesis 19? You mentioned the words Sodom and Gomorrah. There are not too many townships and municipalities being organized today that want to select either one of those names. I mean, there's a hell Michigan, but you don't find Sodom and Gomorrah that I know of. Now, there may be. Somebody's probably got one out there. But who can forget the, the incinerated cities of Sodom and Gomorrah practiced such hideous sin, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and departed from the truth of God that even when God sent his holy angels into their presence, what did they do? They wanted to have homosexual relations with them. It had not been for a lot. Well, of course, I'm sure the angels could have taken care of themselves. But just the audacity of this kind of rebellious attitude against God. Peter says, don't forget. Jude says, don't forget that God absolutely incinerated those cities. And you know, it's an interesting thing. God poured down his holy fire and brimstone from his smelting furnace above and though he poured it down upon those diabolical municipalities and archaeologists today will tell you they still can't find not a shred of the remains of those cities. Some speculate that if there were any remains, they're in the bottom of the Dead Sea. And that's where they will remain. Listen to God pours out his wrath. He doesn't meet it out. He doesn't just kind of tenderly lay out a little. Listen, when you're marked by God, and that's what these false teachers are. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Jude is saying. Don't, the one in the church, be on guard. Not only are these men dangerous, but they're marked for judgment. You don't want to have anything with, to do with them because you've heard that old expression, guilt by association. You'll go down with them. As we look also at the divine purposes of God. What is God doing when He warns so graphically, so powerfully what He has in store for these false teachers and prophets and preachers? He's, God is holding up His divine purposes. He's not just giving a warning of His divine judgment, but, but, but God is also expressing His divine purposes. And one of the purposes of God is to demonstrate His unmistakable holiness. His holiness. How many of our conscious hours of a day do we even give thought to the holiness of God? Is it possible that even unthinking, subconsciously, that we would think thoughts, that we would say things, that we would do things, that we would enter into transactions or relationships that would be an insult to the holiness of God? As if, oh well, God can take care of himself. Oh no, listen. Listen to the words of God in Leviticus 19 too. He says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God. I'm holy. So why is the Lord so upset with the presence of false prophets among His people and false teachers and preachers among His people? Because it's an affront to the holiness of God. And the people of God need to understand that. But not only to demonstrate His unmistakable holiness, but to consistently carry out His divine justice on the ungodly. 
He despised the sinful, deceitful practices of those false prophets in the Old Testament. He despised the, false, the, the, the practices of those false teachers that were infiltrating the early church and misleading so many Christians. And let me tell you something. His divine wrath burns against any of the false teachers and preachers who stand in the pulpits of churches today. They will stand before the Lord one day. They will give an account to God himself and they will suffer the judgment of God. I shudder to think about the fate of those wolves and sheepskins who stand week after week in pulpits and they, they convince and counsel unwitting, confused souls that somehow it's all right with God to have an abortion. That somehow God will tolerate someone engaging in a homosexual relationship. Or somehow that God will excuse premarital sex. Or somehow God will approve you blending Christianity with some other faith tradition of the world. Listen, God is holy. And he's saying it through his words, then, now, and forever. And we, as the people of God, need to be on our toes. We need, they need to be warned. And they are, if they read and believe the word of God. But we need to be warned. And that's why you'll hear me or any of the pastors say, as we teach the word of God, as we preach the word of God, Listen, we're called, and, and yes, we are trained, and, and we thank God 